You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves in the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like history, the visual arts, communications, and comparative religion. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. And I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Anna Kios and Quinn Dombrowski, two of the founders of Sucho, Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online. Anna is head of the Lilly Music Library at Tufts University. Quinn is the academic technology specialist in the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages and in the library at Stanford University. Thank you both so much for talking about this amazing project that you both helped to co-found, and it sounds like that you're continuing to manage and organize as long as the war continues. I wanted to ask a little bit about the legality of web scraping. If you go about web scraping, especially in another country or you know where you can't reach out for permissions, how are you handling permission statements or rights statements, or how are you negotiating that awkward space? Happily, the appeals court the other day confirmed that, in at least in the U.S., web scraping and web archiving of publicly viewable websites is legal, which is great news for us and what I think has more or less been the consensus position within libraries, archives, and museums for a number of years now, um, you know, certainly is the position that the Internet Archive has been proactively taking. We feel, at least within the U.S., quite confident about it. At the same time, it's been interesting collaborating internationally about this because of the differences in both laws and perhaps even more significantly norms around this stuff in other contexts. You know, Sebastian has faced a lot more scrutiny from people in Austria about whether we're respecting the robots.txt file. The answer is no. Uh, (laughs) And the answer is no because I think it's a reasonable position to take that when people write robots.txt files to moderate the activity of search engines and things like that, they're really not thinking about the situation of a war. One of the takeaways from this project that might be worth thinking about after this is maybe, you know, you can put a little human readable footnote in your robots.txt if you want to make it easier for folks in Western Europe to be able to archive sites and provide that kind of support in an emergency. I mean, I think another aspect of what Sucho is doing that makes this less of an issue is that we don't plan to build a massive archive, you know, at any sort of Western research institution out of these materials. We don't want to put Ukrainian cultural heritage in a safe little time capsule that people can study from the West. I mean, we are doing this not for the sake of enhancing our collections, but for having a backup for cultural heritage workers in Ukraine. And our goal is digital repatriation. Um, We don't want to hold on to this stuff forever if, if they don't want us to. And as soon as they're in a position to rebuild, we want to help them do that and let them make the decision about what comes of these files. I really like that phrasing, digital repatriation. It would seem there was not really a playbook for this kind of effort before you all started doing it. This is my own maybe naivete. I would think that there would already be plans in place in 2022 for these sorts of events, but I guess maybe not. I can't just go buy the product at digitalrescue.com. Thinking about where we work in libraries at academic research institutions, right? And I have colleagues in my library who I work with on issues around digital repositories and, you know, making sure that we have backups and things like that. 
There are products that institutions can purchase or create that will allow them to have backups of their content and have redundancies and servers placed geographically in case of war or in case of some kind of weather or whatever could wipe out the servers. But it's also about resources and often about monetary and financial resources and time and people and labor. And so it's not something that many institutions across the globe have the same level of access to, even in the United States. So in addition to thinking about kind of like you were saying, like having a rapid response or some kind of product that they could just buy for data rescue, it's long-term sustainability and preservation issues that we've been grappling with for decades now. And there hasn't been a really great solution that can be made accessible and extended to institutions across the globe. Right. Except throwing more money at Amazon Web Services or something, which you can do, but money's not infinite. We discovered that while there are resources, if you have enough money for web archiving, we weren't able to find any other examples of tips for how to do this in a war. So one of our goals in the longer term, once things calm down a little bit, is to basically write the book that we wish someone had handed us on March 1st, so that the next group of people who have to do this um, you know, aren't starting from where we started. But at the same time, Sucho is an inspiring story, but you know, it's inspiring in the same way that people going into the streets in Kyiv and making Molotov cocktails out of beer bottles and hand sanitizer is, is inspiring. It's a great story, but it also points to a failure of infrastructure. To what extent can we work with libraries and advocate for shifting the burden of web archiving from a reactive model where really the speed at which libraries and large cultural heritage organizations can respond, it doesn't work. You need a group of volunteers who are working outside the methodical frameworks of libraries to be able to capture things quickly. Um, but how can we shift the burden so that there's more proactive work that can go through those methodical processes so that when there's an emergency, people aren't starting from scratch? Ironically, that was one of the original goals of the Internet Archive, to take the burden of these repositories off of the people that are actually doing the work and just get the stuff scraped and stored. And they do a great job of that, too. Our concern is there's a single point of failure when there's a single organization doing it for everybody. It's a tremendous resource, and they've been in our Slack, they've been answering questions, they've been improving their infrastructure, they've been um, you know, a tremendous partner on this project. But when the Bay Area Power Company can take down all of web archiving, that's a problem. Well, it feels like for years, the solution to possible risks is to just digitize everything. And that a lot of people didn't take that second step of offshore your data. You know, as the IT person for my organization, I would not prioritize offshoring data. I did not consider, say, a foreign invasion of my country a possible risk that I had to manage. Even if you're not living in an area where foreign invasion is a risk that you think about a lot, how about an earthquake? How about a tornado? There are many kinds of disasters and, you know, water is terrible for servers. Sea level rise, that's not good for your data either. And while digitize everything sounds like an appealing approach, then you have two sets of problems, how to manage the physical stuff and the digital stuff, which is in many ways harder to manage than physical documents. Or like the notions that you both have brought up about sustainability, which is not just that the data continues to get hosted somewhere and that that hosting gets paid for, but what do you do in 10 or 15 or 20 years when those file formats aren't consumable anymore? 
I actually have about a thousand CD-ROMs of data, and it's the only place it lives. Water probably won't hurt it, but I don't even know if those CD-ROMs are going to mount anymore. There's a reason that microfilm is still a thing. That's what they're storing in the Black Forest in Germany. There actually is a bunker, the Barbarostrollen. It's a cultural heritage bunker, and what they put in there was not CDs, it's microfilm. Which you could actually read with a magnifying glass if you had to. You wouldn't even need electricity. I'm curious, just because you said the Internet Archive has been a really good partner and really supportive throughout this process, what about other institutional support? I mean, I'm guessing Stanford and Tufts are okay with your doing this project? I'll say that I have received a lot of support and kind of admiration from my supervisors and colleagues and people on campus and definitely have been encouraged to keep working on it. But at the same time, I'm still doing my full-time job. So it's not like I'm getting to take tons of time off to work on this effort because I still have to manage and run my library and teach a class this semester. So life doesn't stop, but I feel like this is something that's really obviously important and I'm committed to working on. So I'm making it happen. And I have Quinn and Sebastian and all those volunteers, right? It's a collective. We're all working and helping each other out because no one person can do this whole thing. And Quinn, is that the same case for you? You're doing this on top of your day job? I had a fairly broadly defined day job to begin with. It basically is whatever needs to be done to support digital humanities in non-English literatures. And both Stanford libraries and my department, which includes the Slavic department, have been very clear. There's nothing they need me to do that's more urgent than this. There's probably 20-some people from Stanford working on this project. About half of them come from Stanford libraries. Simon Wiles has been sort of handling some of the debugging of some of the more complex crawls. Ed Summers and Laura Werbel, um, you know, have been helping with social media archiving. Georgi Karatkov, who's one of the grad students, I mean, maybe the first person to ever, you know, write a Python script to be able to scrape these common post-Soviet library uh, catalog systems. It really has been a great chance to collaborate with folks in the library and outside it who I wouldn't normally have a chance to work with in this way. What about outside of your institutions? Is Amazon hosting for free because you're so awesome? We are very grateful for Amazon's many, many credits of support for our storage and our cloud servers, yeah. We've even been getting sort of like hands-on technical support from the AWS engineers based out of Poland. They've been talking with Sebastian. They're also supporting the project in terms of helping provide these scanners for the local cultural heritage institutions. Yeah, Amazon's been wonderful. Just a detail for the listeners. You both have mentioned Sebastian several times. So Sebastian is who? Sebastian Meisterovich. He's our third collaborator. He's at the Austrian Center for Digital Humanities and Cultural Heritage. Time zones make it difficult for him to join us today, but it's the three of us. We've basically been living together online for two months now. So, Does that help, though, actually, with the time zones? Because then someone's sort of around and maybe awake for some of the volunteers and all that kind of thing. Someone's always awake. As the furthest West person, you know, in California, when I'm going to bed, I see the flurries of activity starting up in Western Europe, and I know the work continues. Are there other institutions that are involved in the effort? And I don't just necessarily mean someone's home institution where they're a volunteer, but where you're getting formal support or formal partnerships or anything like that. We are sort of deliberately independent of any um, kind of formal organization or library. There are a number of them who are mirroring our data which is tremendously useful. Like We don't want to be the single point of failure either. 
for sort of info security reasons, we don't name them, but they know who they are and we are grateful to them as well. Are there financial needs then? If you have all volunteers and you have donated data storage, do you guys also still need money for things? And if so, can people give you money? That's a great question. <laughs> so we have an open collective site. It's opencollective.com forward slash Sucho, where we've identified some of the financial needs. So we do have a need for a hundred terabyte server, for example, to help us back up our archives and host a virtual exhibit slash gallery space that we're building. And there's some other things that people can help sponsor as well. I just wanted to ask about Omeka and Sucho because I spotted something on Twitter that just blew my mind that as an outcome of this project, Omeka is rolling out a Ukrainian UI, which is so cool. So Omeka is a digital collections and exhibit platform, you know, free and open source, you know, developed by the digital humanities community, um, sort of a, a, one of the longstanding pillars of tools that people use for this kind of work. It really is the beauty of open source. Omeka put basically all of the text of their interface online in a free translation platform and made it open for any volunteer to come in and translate it into any of the languages that they had listed there. It looked like at one point someone started a Ukrainian translation, but either the software was updated or they didn't get through it all and there was still a big chunk of work to be done. And so my colleague at Stanford, Professor Yulia Ilchuk, one weekend sat down and translated all the rest of the text. And we let the Omeka folks know, and Sharon Leon has been amazing and you know, in our Slack as well. And they'll be releasing a new update to Omeka with a full Ukrainian translation. This is so that if someone is using this platform to manage their digital assets, that all the forms and all the buttons and all the links on that actual web page platform that you're using are translated into whatever the language is that you need to read it in, whether it's Ukrainian or French or whatever. Yeah, exactly. If you think about it, you know, there's so much text that goes into these UIs, you know, file, save, upload, name, just think of it. There was another piece of software we were looking at that someone had used machine translation on the fields, which often works, but sometimes it doesn't. So what we discovered was the date field was referring to like a romantic engagement date. <laughs> so it's really important to have people check this who can actually read the language. Quinn, Anna, thank you so much for taking time out of what must be very busy days for both of you to talk about your data rescue efforts in Ukraine. Really can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And if you would like more information about the work that they're doing in terms of data rescue, cultural heritage resource preservation, digital repatriation, you can visit the website sucho.org online. That's S-U-C-H-O dot org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. <laughs>